Hi folks, Miranda Rutherford here. Thanks for joining us for the Berkeley Technology Law Journal podcast. Wait a second, is this a new host? What exactly is going on here? Shouldn't you be graduating? Get out of here already. You're right, Shantae and I are both graduating this year and then we'll be spending the summer crying into our bar exam review materials, but the podcast lives on. Miranda is the podcast editor-elect. Miranda, along with the rest of the podcast team, will be bringing you all sorts of new podcasts focusing on the intersection of law and technology. Okay, let's get to the show. You are probably listening to this on your iPod or Android device. Do you really own the music on your phone? In today's podcast, we discuss how intellectual property transactions often don't line up to consumer expectations. Some consumers may be surprised to find out that they only own a license to use, rather than owning the media outright. What are courts to do when consumers and sellers lock horns? Our podcast editor, Tony Beadle, and the journal's editor-in-chief, Christian Chessman, talk to Lothar Dieterman. Lothar helps our hosts dissect this new digital transaction environment. Lothar suggests looking to the old world. Germany can help us disentangle the issue. Lothar Dieterman is an attorney with nearly 20 years of experience. Lothar is a partner at Baker and McKenzie's Palo Alto office, where his work focuses on privacy, IT commercialization, intellectual property, and other tech transactional work. When he's not advising clients, Lothar also teaches classes at Berkeley Law. Lothar Dieterman will publish an article on today's topic in the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, entitled Digital Exhaustion, New Law from the Old World. Enjoy the show! All right, podcast listeners, thank you for joining us today. We're with Lothar Dieterman. He is a law professor at UC Berkeley, where his classes focus on intellectual property, technology, and privacy. Additionally, Professor Dieterman is an attorney for Baker McKenzie's Palo Alto office, where he advises on data privacy and other tech-related topics. Thank you so much for joining us today, Professor. Could you tell us about your path to the law and why, in particular, you chose to focus on topics that intersect with technology. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. The path to the law for me came that after high school, I wondered if I wanted to be a professional musician or doing some kind of business thing. And I did a a bank apprenticeship for two years to grow up a little bit. And then out of that, (laughs) the options were business school or law school. And I liked accounting, but I also liked all the legal related problems. So I ended up going to law school, and by that time I was very motivated to to go back to work. So I finished the German legal education two and a half years, took the state exam, and then said, "Wow, I missed law school altogether." And at that point, <laughs> I wanted to get a JSD. Germany, you know, all the lawyers have, in addition to the JD, they do a doctorate, and I took some time on that, and then wrote another thesis. And both of those theses, I picked technology topics. I found it very interesting. It was fast moving. They were new topics. Not many people had written about it. I picked as my JSD topic for the doctorate the what the government should do if there's a new technology, there are proven health effects, but nobody knows yet if they're harmful. And my topic was at the time electrosmog. So the question was mobile phone stations phone emit, stations emit frequency and they have thermal effects fry your brain you can get cancer everybody knew that but then the power stations also emit technology they have athermal effects and nobody really knew what they were doing to the health and german courts started prohibiting them and said 
it has to be regulated by Cong the German parliament before anybody can do that. Germany had similarly shut down gene technology, and I wanted to examine the question where the courts can really state the rule that everything's prohibited until it is permitted by statute, and I was interested. And then when I was done with that, and it, um, I did well on it, then I picked freedom of speech on the Internet. At the time, the Internet was a total new thing, and it was actually, to my shame, my mentor, Professor Lechler, who suggested the topic to me, and I said, the Internet, what is that? <laughs> and I... Wrote the first book on that. It is in German, uh, 683 pages with a 10-page English summary that was published in 1999. It took a while to put together. And as part of the German education, I did an internship in different places. You have to article for two years and work for a court, and they assign you to different places. And I wanted to check out Silicon Valley and work for Baker McKenzie as a clerk. Clark. And at the time, not thinking time that I would go into practice, but I fell in love with uh, technology law here, the rapid pace and the, how much the Silicon Valley was ahead that I then started as a first-year associate Baker McKenzie and wanted to keep teaching. So I started teaching information security and privacy law at University of San Francisco Law School. And in 2004... 2003, actually, in the fall, Professor Chopra called me and asked me whether I wanted to teach it here at Berkeley. And that was a dream of mine come true. When I was working on my thesis, I'd already read law review articles in California Law Review. And the Berkeley Technology Law Journal was just starting out. And so when I was called by Berkeley, this was a great day. And I've enjoyed teaching here since. Great. So in addition to being a full-time partner at a law firm and teaching classes, you also write articles. One of your more recent articles that you're going to publish with the Berkeley Technology Law Journal is called Digital Exhaustion, New Law from the Old World. Could you tell us about the consumer trends that might have prompted this piece or what you've observed? This came actually out of a great conference, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology Symposium on April 14, 2016 where I think the program was 20 years old. It was started, as you might know from the history books, by professors Lemley, Minnell, Merges, and Samuelson, who also published an awesome book on it, Software and Internet Law, that I have used teaching the class and learning up on it myself. And they were doing the symposium. And at the symposium, during the breaks, I was presenting a paper at the time on software copyrights in the cloud that I wrote with Professor Nimmer. He actually teaches at UCLA, but he's a great supporter of the Berkeley programs and comes north here now and then. And he was, um, he and I worked on a book chapter for a law book regulating the cloud on software copyrights in the cloud. And I was presenting that paper here um, at the symposium. And in the break, I talked to Professor Hufnagel, who is also teaching here, and we've been working together on things. And he was working on this interesting article. I was asking, what are you working on? And he said, working on this article, what we buy when we buy now. And his paper with a lot of empirical research um, with colleague Aaron Perzanowski, the paper is published, the University of Pennsylvania Review, 2017. At the time, it was still in draft form. He sent me the manuscript afterwards, but I was fascinating this idea, and he was saying, I'm looking into the question of what the lay people today think they're buying when they click 
buy now at an e-commerce store, at a streaming platform, and how they consume copyrighted articles such as music, books, things other than software, really. Mm -hmm. And he was looking into that, and he had this empirical study, which is a relatively new thing in the field of law that professors of law do empirical studies. And he was publishing this, and I was very interested, and I said, Chris, there's actually some interesting cases out of Germany on this topic as well. And I sent him some of those and um, then thought about what the new world and the old world view of what ownership means with respect to digital works, such as music files, video files, books, ebooks, audiobooks, and other media. What does that mean to people today? What do they understand? they're buying or what ownership means was his topic and my topic was more from the legal perspective how have courts looked into it and how have they dealt with questions such as are consumers being misled when they see a buy button but really they're only buying a permission and have only limited use right so that interested me it came out of this great symposium and I started working on it I presented it actually in Southern California that paper before I published it here. I was invited to a conference at the University of Southern California, USC, and had this topic together with a Dutch law professor and also industry uh, lawyers from the southern part where all the copyright owners sit, um, whereas here in the north we have been more technology-leaning and perhaps a little anti-copyright, so an interesting dimension there. And a great discussion afterwards, Professor Nimmer was actually um, chairing that conference, and out of that came the idea to write this article. So in all my free time, I set out to bring the old world law on this topic to California. And so what are the typical expectations that consumers are carrying in the digital age that animate this piece that you wrote? Are individuals thinking in terms of physical objects, or are we moving into more of the licenses or permissions? My sense is that the consumer expectations vary much by generation, but less and less consumers are focused in the old school traditional ownership. And I teach my class here, and I just finished my first lecture on <laughs> computer law that you, Tony, were attending. <laughs> and yep. haven't been kicked out yet. We have a little oversubscribed, but I understand you're enrolled, so that's good. <laughs> and, and I'm not kicking anybody out of the class. Um, the focus of that class is intellectual property laws as they apply to computer software. And as I will teach in the class, Ownership is much about excluding others. The government gives exclusive rights to people relating to things so that they do something with it. Hundreds and thousands of years ago, they started allocating objects to people so that they would care to make tools. And society gave land ownership to farmers so we stopped being just hunters and gatherers and we actually plant something on the fields and harvest it. And we'll only do that if we can exclude others from harvesting what we sow. And therefore, we have these ownerships, uh, concepts, and property rights that pretty much every country in the world now has, except perhaps North Korea. The consequence of that is that innovation is incentivized because you get exclusion rights. And then you can later exclude others from making copies of things, taking ideas, and you can either 
do your business yourself. We talked about different business models today. Or you can get money from somebody else and let them run your business and offer this protection under a license agreement. Now, with consumers, in the old days, they would buy a book. They might rent it to their friend. They might resell it at some kind of a flea market or garage sale. Or maybe they hang on to it because they want to refer to it again. Today, though, many younger people, particularly my own kids, they like to stream music. They often don't know what album a song is from or whatever group is from. They have a streaming service that proposes some songs to them, similar songs. They want to experience new things, and they care less about excluding others from a copy. It's not worth anything to them. And they may also not be so concerned about holding on to a physical possession of a song, audiobook, ebook, or other thing, because it will always be available to them. They're not concerned about it. There's very large companies now who have these services that they're offered. And it's more important to them that they can access it any time that is conveniently interoperable with the home entertainment system. When I purchased my current house, there was already a Stanford professor had installed a very cool entertainment system that he threw in to the home price at the time. And so I have a sauna system in there. By now, it's completely outdated, by the way. <laughs> I was still I was in the old mode, bringing all my CDs, all and he had this multiple CD burner that I could upload it and listen to it. But he had already subscribed also to one of the streaming services. And the kids really appreciate more the fact that they can connect their mobile phones to it and play whatever music is on than to have a disc and own that disc and put it away. And that's not what they care about. So the views from the users have changed and they appreciate more that they can maybe set up a family system where they can share this with other family members and make additional copies, which may not be permitted with the disc, than they are to actually own the disc and exclude others from it. So there is definitely a change in user views and Chris Hufnagel and Aaron Perzanovsky in this article that I mentioned before, what we buy when we buy now, examines those trends more than I can just summarize it. But they're looking at questions such as, do people realize that they cannot resell it, that they cannot pass it on to the next generation? Younger right. people obviously not that concerned about it. Are they worried about publishers recalling it? I've viewed started reviewing movies on a screening service that at the year end disappeared from the library so i couldn't view the second part of uh, a movie and then went and bought the dvd as i'm used to to make sure i can view it whenever i want and those kinds of things are examined in there and the question is can people still fathom it it's relatively easy to understand ownership you own it you have it you possess it you exclude others these offerings that the very innovative companies are giving are much more difficult to understand, have to be explained in terms of views that go over pages and pages. And that is a topic that companies are grappling with, consumers are grappling with, and we scholars are grappling with. And on that topic, what are some of the concerns of or the, the things a consumer should be thinking about in terms of what they will no longer be able to do in this new digital age where it's driven by licenses. Um, so there might be some things where we have blending of the physical and a license, like a car. Is that the area of concern that you see, or is it something else? One of the things I love so much about California is that we don't talk so much about concerns, but about opportunities. And we see the sunshine. We even love rain when it rains. Today it actually pours down quite nicely. 
I don't know that there is that much we need to be concerned about. One of the topics that lawyers, scholars, courts, companies care about is the question of whether consumers can resell a digital work copy that they have acquired one way or another. And that is one of the big topics that the law cares about. And that is the question of once you purchase something, can you resell it? I don't think that consumers necessarily have to be concerned about it, but it's certainly an interesting topic because that used to be one of the fundamental rights that people were looking for when they paid for something. They wanted to be able to decide whether they can resell it or not. And that is something that's certainly under discussion. And could you tell us more about that topic? So historically, there's something called the first sale doctrine that applies to historically, typically things like physical objects, like books. How is that treated under the current regime today? In 1908, In 1908 my, grandfather was, my born, grandfather was born, and also, and also the U.S. Supreme Court, US Supreme Court decided, a case decided a case on... On the first sale doctrine and copyright law for the first time here in this country, Bob's Merrill Company versus Strauss. Strauss were the founders of the retail store Macy's, which is still in business and doing well, and at the time sold a novel, a print version of The Castaway under a dollar. And people in 1908 were very excited to buy this novel. But the Bob's Merrill Company had printed a statement on there and said the price of this book at retail is $1 net. No dealer is licensed to sell it at a less price, and a sale at a less price will be treated as an infringement of the copyright. There's various reasons why copyright owners want to keep the price up at a certain level, and maybe we'll get into some of those, maybe not. But they were trying to use the copyright law to dictate at what price the book can be resold. And the Supreme Court looked at this and said, the exclusive rights that are afforded to the copyright owner do not include controlling the resale. The Copyright Act didn't actually say that at the time, but it had been codified afterwards relatively quickly. So section 109 of the Copyright Act now says that the owner of a copy can resell it. And the idea is that there should be some limitation of these exclusive rights that the copyright law gives to people. We give, I mentioned that earlier, exclusive rights of property ownership to people to incentivize them to innovate. We feel, and our Constitution says that the federal government should give exclusive rights to authors so that they can make some money off of the books they write, in this case, music they compose, record, videos, films, other things. And one of the exclusive rights is to control distribution so that they can sell copies. That's one of the things you can do. The question is, though, can you also prohibit the resale of the first owner? And now the Copyright Act says, no, that cannot be done. We have these limitations to balance the exclusive rights that we give to somebody to incentivize further innovation. We put limitations on it so that the public can still have access to these works and build on it and make derivative works and translate things and further develop ideas. And we want to be um, owners of copies, to be able to resell them as a limitation on what the copyright owner can restrict so that we have still um, not too many hidden restraints in commerce that people are insecure about. If they purchase a book, is that guy really allowed to sell it to me? They're not the copyright owner. To minimize that, to keep commerce rolling, and also to incentivize 
um, the further creation of um, a marketplace in used books, we have some limitations on it. And that's what the first sale doctrine is all about. I want to jump in and ask a question about that marketplace for second-use books. You were talking about how the original doctrine from the Supreme Court came kind of as a question of prices. And what I'm curious about is whether having a market for resale and reuse affects prices for consumers. Because I think that is one thing. Maybe they may not be as concerned with an exclusion right, but they definitely are typically concerned with prices. So do you think having a license-oriented regime depresses or affects prices? And do you think that having no market for resale where you're using streaming services or it's like a Netflix that only allows you to have the movie for so long, do you think those types of licensing regimes depress prices? Do you think they affect prices? Or do you think they ultimately take more out of a consumer's pocketbook? They definitely affect prices. Every time the government steps in with a restriction, prohibition, restraint, the marketplace will respond to it in one way or another, and that will affect prices. The first sale doctrine has a tendency to make used books available at a lower price and therefore restrict of what the copyright owner can charge for another copy of a new book. Whether price discrimination is ultimately good or bad for consumers is a hotly debated place a little bit east of here at the Haas Business School, even more than here at the law school. But we, of course, think about this as well. And there are certainly economic arguments why price discrimination is a good thing. In the book market for novels, it's probably not as impressive as in another area that has been a great interest of mine since I came here to Silicon Valley, and that's in the software field. If you look at a software program that does word processing, that has a certain value for a student who can pay for it, and it has a certain limited value for it. I was still doing my exams in handwriting, and when I wrote my PhD thesis in 94, is the first time I got a software program, and it was competing for me with a typewriter. Mm -hmm. At the time, we're doing things by handwriting, and I had to think about this investment. There was a limited amount of what I could pay for the Microsoft Windows and Word copy that I had at the time. But companies were already making tons of money off of Microsoft products and using that for further efficiency. And if a company can distinguish and differentiate in the prices depending who they sell to, then they're able to extract a low price from a lot of people who are have a limited budget, but they can pay for a copy for some limited use, say write a PhD thesis or a student copy or something else, and then charge a different price for the same program that can do much more for a law firm, for example, that will charge clients for it or a software company that might combine the software with something else and sell it. And so if you allow the software company to dictate the prices of what they can charge for, then they can overall generate more revenue and at the same time, they can make this super powerful software program available to a student at a low price without fearing that that student might sell the used copy to 
accompany to the law firm, which will, a used copy of software particularly is as good as a new copy in many respects, and therefore will be destroying this price discrimination system. Let's say the law firm is willing to pay for a copy $10,000, and the student has just 100 If the software copyright owner is able to price discriminate and prohibit the resale and just license these copies, then they can license a lot of students and make it available for 100 without having to fear that they lose this one-time $10,000 payoff by the law firm. And therefore, price discrimination can be a good thing for consumer prices, and the first sale doctrine will not always um, protect the consumer prices. Another example, without going too much into that, but since you asked, is of course the international price discrimination, and that came out of the Kurtzang decision by the U.S. Supreme Court and the question of whether companies should be able to price discriminate between jurisdiction. Wiley Company was selling U.S. English textbook at a relatively high price here, and we're still wanting to make these available also in other countries, including Thailand and Asian countries, but said those are only for sale outside of the U.S to not affect the U.S. price. And the U.S. Supreme Court said at the time if they were authorized sales outside, then they can be brought back in, which is a huge um, change in U.S. policy. And whatever you think of the decision, it's an interesting read on the different conflicting theories on prices and consumers. And this is something that has always greatly interested me, and I want to mention this in response to your question as well. When I came here... A new thing for a first-year associate in a law firm was to write software license agreements. And one of my colleagues, who was also a first-year law associate at Baker McKenzie, was Aaron Falmouth, who now teaches. He's a full-time professor at Arizona State University in Tempe. We were drafting these license agreements, and we were thinking ourselves, what should be in those? At the time, it was a relatively novel thing. I'm not saying that we invented those, but we were certainly still... You're not saying you didn't invent them. <laughs> I did not invent them. I, I did not invent the internet. I've been, I've been thinking about, though, what should be in them, and there were some templates, but we were thinking about what should be in a user license agreement for a consumer versus a company that was using it. What about a site license concurrent users, there were all these different models, and we were trying to understand how this works together with copyrights, patents, and so on, which I ended up teaching here at Berkeley for now 15, this is my 15th year here teaching this class. But at the time I was experiencing myself, I was thinking what should go into there, and we were asking ourselves, why is there an end user license agreement for a software copy? There's none for a book, should there be one? And how can companies, software companies avoid the first sale doctrine by calling it a license when many aspects of this transaction are more like a sale. And so we're looking at this price discrimination question, and we ended up co-authoring an article that was called Don't Judge a Sale by Its License, and we were looking at what our company is really selling here. And we said, well, you could sell a copy, you could sell a license, and we looked at it from a European perspective and from a U.S. perspective. I'm coming here as a German lawyer, civil law jurisdiction, where the courts are very hesitant, reluctant to accept what companies write into an agreement. And German courts, for the most part, have completely ignored the idea of a software end user license. And they said, if it's a one-time payment and you have per perpetual possession of the software copy, it's a sale, we don't care what you call it. <laughs> and shrink wrap and click through licenses aren't enforceable either. And that was the German view of things, a jurisdiction that is somewhat reluctant to accept mass market consumer contracts and is more about public policy that the 
democratically legitimized parliament has decided that there should be a first sale doctrine, then we will apply it here and we don't let companies draft around it. Here in California, the courts have been much more flexible and they looked at it and they look at a transaction, even a mass market transaction, trusting in freedom of contract here in the land of the free to say if a consumer pays for a license and doesn't challenge it and lets the companies, if you will, get away with not selling copies but selling only licenses, then we will look at those licenses and if they say it's not a sale, then we will assume it's not a sale. That's basically greatly summarized how U.S. courts have been treating it unless there was a clear case of circumvention. So we looked at the case law in 2001 and I've revisited it basically at this at the symposium that I mentioned in the article with Professor Nimmer as the markets have greatly changed for software, but not for digital works other than software. And that's what the current article is about. And you, in this long answer to your short question of how are price discrimination affecting consumer price, are they good for consumers? My bottom line sense, being a Californian, a recent immigrant, but with an American passport now. I'm also leaning towards saying, let's look at what these companies are offering and maybe it's what the consumers want. We assume that's what they want because that's what everybody is buying and people aren't buying copies anymore. They like streaming and let's look at these contracts. Let's look at whether they really are sales or are they something else. And at the end of the day, the market tries to support the consumers in the long run. I'm not convinced that we need to be concerned. I think we should be interested. We should be on our guard and make sure that the policy um, goals of the legislation to further innovation, to further creative works are being reached as scholars. We watch that, but I'm not, I'm, I'm leaning towards not to be concerned when I look at a very competitive market that we have with lots of new business models and in my own household, the uh, younger members are very excited about streaming and having this on their little tablets and other yeah. devices. And what are the distinctions that these old world, such as Germany, courts are relying on when they come to those conclusions? Is this just a broad sense of fairness that this looks like a physical object, it's treated like a physical object, so we're going to apply the laws like this was a book that was the fascinating thing that i talked to chris about at the symposium that i mentioned earlier when he was raising these concerns and said consumers are being misled about what they're really buying what we're buying when we click buy now he was in his article basically laying out a roadmap for consumers to fight back and bring on for competition lawsuits and i said you know i'm from the jurisdiction where consumers are protected the most the government is perhaps of most jurisdictions in the world concerned about protecting competition and intervening in markets all the time. And in our home jurisdiction, the courts have actually accepted that a copy downloaded on one of those platforms that comes under a set of rules that allow some sharing and some shifting on different devices, but not a resale, is actually not a sale. That was fascinating to me. I mentioned earlier the software cases and the German courts basically said if it's a, a one-time payment and a perpetual transfer of possession, it's a sale. I don't care what the agreement says. But in these 
digital songs, videos, ebooks, audiobooks, the German courts had actually looked at it and said, no, this is fundamentally different. The consumer gets a lot of additional rights, such as putting out on different devices, um, sharing it with family members. We're going to look at this and not consider it a sale. And this was fascinating also because there was a very famous decision, Oracle versus USoft, where the European Court of Justice had ruled against the California-based software company who tried to prevent a German company, USoft, from reselling licenses in a decision that I have in several articles heavily criticized. I don't think there was a real basis in the law. But moreover, the practice of USoft was basically doing this arbitrage that I mentioned earlier. They were buying this from educational institutions from charities where the California-based company had wanted to give this very powerful enterprise resource planning software to at a, at a huge discount, 90%, 95% to educational nonprofit and other users who were then turning around and reselling it to this USOF company, which was then selling it to corporations. And the California company tried to stop it. And the European Court of Justice came in really hard and said, no, also everything is a sale and first sale doctrine always applies and basically greatly restricting this business model. But the German courts were not picking up the same view for any other works. It's a technicality that is explained more in this article because software copyrights and everything else copyrights are regulated differently in Europe, whereas here it's all subject to the same Copyright Act. And the German courts looked at the USoft Oracle decision and said, we're not going to apply that to music in this other regime for a number of technical reasons that are better to follow in the article than in a podcast. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing to me was that they were not transferring this and they were saying that consumers are not being misled and that they have to understand if they purchase a license to a song that that is not purchasing the copy itself with the ability to resell it and that there are restrictions and that's okay because the transaction is fundamentally different from an old sales transaction. I found that interesting that the old world in this area had a more progressive view on the company's ability to structure some completely new business models and not trying to squeeze that into the first sale doctrine than the new world and that's the title that I picked for the article in the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, Digital Exhaustion, New Law from the Old World. Just to wrap that up or connect it to the U.S. model, how is it different being that our copyright model doesn't really discriminate between music, software, books, in, in the sense of what's protected? Would you... What's, what's your sense of how U.S. courts might look to these differences in European courts? I think the U.S. courts haven't even had that many decisions on it. And I think they would come out the same way in the sense that they would also not consider those sales of copies. They already didn't do that in the mm -hmm. software area. Yeah. So the interesting part of the article is not necessarily that this is going to be decided altogether differently in the U.S. We had a case here with Redigi that was a company that would allow the resale of software copies in the cloud. Big problem that you can't really resell a copy in the cloud. You would have to make another copy to even get it to the cloud in the first place, and that's not allowed under the Copyright Act. And the only court who looked at this said immediately that's infringement and 
there's no way to to have a digital exhaustion doctrine because you'd have to make a new copy in the first place to sell anything. And so the interesting part of the article is not that U.S. courts have decided it differently. The interesting point that I wanted to add to the discussion is that the way that the U.S. courts are looking at it and can be assumed to be looking at is actually shared by the European courts in this area and that there may not be a need to protect the consumers from all these new business models if Germany, a country with perhaps the most rigid consumer protection and competition law, is not thinking that there's something wrong with it, then why would California or the U.S., the land of the free, the center of innovation in the universe and for information technology, why should we here protect? And so that was a counterpoint that I wanted to make to some of the arguments that my dear esteemed colleagues have um, advanced scholars tend to lean towards protecting the first sale doctrine and the exhaustion principle, whereas I'm thinking that the the fa mere fact that the German courts are not even thinking this is necessary might be an indication for us here that we shouldn't find anything wrong with the fact that we're allowing companies to experiment with mass market new business models. All right, Professor Dieterman, thank you so much for joining us for today's podcast. For our listeners, We'll include a link to the article in the show notes. Um, is there any uh, contact information that you would want to extend to our listeners? Or do you blog, do you tweet, or do you maintain any other information online that could be useful? I am proud to say that I have Lota at Gmail as a personal address. You can easily find my contact information on my law firm's website, bakermckenzie.com. I'm always interested in hearing from students, from colleagues, other professors, lawyers on this idea and others. And I think this podcast program that you have here that uh, Chante and Tony and others here at the Berkeley Technology Law Journal are running is fascinating and is a great idea. I love, we talked about this, you do too, consuming audiobooks. And I think it's such a great um, idea of you that turn the academic focus of long journal articles with footnotes into a nice summary that people can consume in their commute in their cars. So I hope you all enjoyed this here. I certainly enjoyed participating in it. I'm myself a, a fan of audiobooks and podcasts and other things. And if you have a podcast, you listener, let me know about it too. And I want to hear from that. And I thank you, Tony and Chante and Christian to invite me here to that today. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Still read the footnotes. Yeah, there's, there's gold nuggets in those footnotes. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. Thank you, Professor. Thanks for joining today's podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by Tony Beadle, Christian Chessman, and me, Miranda Rutherford. We want to give a special thanks to today's guest, Lothar Dieterman. We've provided links to Lothar's recent publication with BTLJ. We'll also be bringing you a podcast on this subject in the future. We are committed to bringing you interesting conversations involving the intersection of technology and the law. If you enjoyed our podcast, please support us by subscribing and rating us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you found our podcast, so we can reach other listeners. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for, for a show, please contact our editor at bedel at berkeley.edu. The views expressed by podcast hosts and guests are their own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. The information presented is not legal advice and may not be up to date. 
This podcast is intended for academic and entertainment purposes only. Don't get legal advice from podcasts. Talk to a lawyer.